0: Today is a, uh, it's a special day here at Del Cerro, and if you're visiting, we want to welcome you. I see a lot of new faces. I want to welcome you to this gathering of our church. Normally, what we do here is preach through books of the Bible. So I'm going through the book of Matthew in our normal, steady diet. Uh, next week, we'll, we'll be in Matthew chapter 23 as we look at the seven woes that, that Christ proclaims, or declares over the Pharisees. Pastor Saunders has been preaching through 1 Thessalonians, as you've been hearing the last few weeks. That's that's the, the meat and potatoes of our Sunday morning diet. God's word, and I thank God that he continues to nourish us through his word as a church. But the gathering of the church is more than gathering to worship God through singing and hearing from God's word. You think, what could be more than that? But we also observe together, we observe the ordinances when we gather together. The first Sunday of every month, we share in the Lord's Supper together. And as pastors, we've been praying that we'd also have the privilege as a church of celebrating baptism together. And the Lord has answered our prayer. And today we're going to formally welcome two born-again brothers into Christ's kingdom with us And going underwater and coming back up is the means by which we do this as Christians. And the question that I want to address today and that I hope that we can answer is, why? Why is water baptism the visible beginning of life in Christ's kingdom? Why is it? That at the end of of Matthew's gospel, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus is sending out his disciples, and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why? Why baptism? Why not make disciples and say, why don't we wash their feet? After all, they've been been cleansed of sin, and Jesus washed feet, and it was sort of a a sign that he was going to be cleaning the disciples' sins, so why don't we do that? Why why not not anoint new believers with oil to show they've been spiritually healed? Why Why didn't Jesus say, when someone comes to Christ, when they become a disciple, give them a hug? Or, or pat them on the back, or, or give them a special hat to wear. Or some sort of outfit that would mark them out as Christians wherever they went. Or, or, or better yet, why not have new believers carry a little cross with them? Because remember Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Wouldn't that be a good symbol? Or why not, when someone commits themselves to Christ why not just have them raise their hand or come down the aisle at an altar call? Well, the simple answer is, well, because Jesus didn't say do an altar call. Jesus said baptize them. So why baptism? And that's an important, very important question to ask because asking why Jesus commands his disciples to baptize new disciples helps us to understand a lot about baptism. The why helps us understand how to baptize and who baptizes who and when they ought to do it. If you, if you just get the why question right, then everything else becomes much, much simpler. We wouldn't need denominations. We would all be Baptists. <laughs> Honestly, Honestly, though, there's something, there there really is something about knowing God's reasoning. There's something about, about knowing and understanding the mind of God through his word that makes his commands all the more reasonable and more meaningful and really more beautiful. So in order to answer the why question, which is what we're going to be doing today, we first of all need to remind ourselves of what becoming a Christian is. All right, so to do this, I'm going to point you to two passages of Scripture that give us two different images, two different pictures of what's happening to a Christian at conversion or to a person when he or she is converted to become a Christian. But the first picture I want you to see is that becoming a Christian is this. It is Deliverance and transference, sounds complicated, doesn't it? Deliverance and transference. Look with me at Colossians chapter one, verse 13. And we're gonna be going through a lot of scripture today, so I've, I've put most of them up on the screen for you. If you are fast enough, you can keep up in, in your Bibles, but um, you can also read with us on the screen. These are from the English Standard Version of the Bible, that's the Bible that we use here at Del Cerro Baptist Church. Uh, If you have another Bible, you'll probably see some very similar language here. So Colossians 1.13, this is the Apostle Paul. He's speaking to the church in Colossae, and he he summarizes for that church, in this verse, an unseen reality. An unseen reality that has taken place for them as Christians, making them Christians. So let me read it for us. Colossians 1.13 He, and Paul is speaking of God here, He God has delivered us, there's that word delivered, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Which is to say, we, all of us, Paul is including himself here, he says us, you see that, he's delivered us, Paul was born into a Jewish family, and he's including with him in the us, a mostly Gentile group of Colossians. So he says, All of us are delivered by God from the domain of darkness. In Ephesians 2, he describes it somewhat similarly. He says, This beginning state, we were dead in our trespasses following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So we come in as as darkness dwellers. We come in as following the prince of the power of the air, following the spirit who is at work in the sons of disobedience. We come in as darkness dwellers. If, If my birth certificate were theologically accurate, there would be a line right beside where my physical place of birth, it would say place of birth, Siler City, North Carolina, and then there'd be one under it that says spiritual place of birth, and it would say domain of darkness. If you're from California, it just says domain of darkness for the whole thing. (laughs) The, The domain of darkness is the spiritual state that we must be delivered from, and by God's grace... That's just what he does. He he delivers us from that domain and he transfers us spiritually into Christ's kingdom. That's conversion. What Paul calls the kingdom of his beloved son. That's where we go when we're delivered from the domain of darkness. So if you're truly a Christian, it's because you have been delivered from sin and transferred from one kingdom to another. From the kingdom of the world Domain of darkness to the kingdom of Christ, and remember, Christ means anointed king. He is the long-awaited king. So, so hold on to that image, that transference, that deliverance, that. That's the reality of conversion, one of the realities of conversion, and it's especially important to how we understand baptism. So just hold on to that one for a minute as our first image. The second image that God's word gives us to show us what's happening when we become Christians is this concept of being born again. So in John's gospel, the gospel according to John, in John chapter 3, there's a, a Pharisee, a teacher... of of Jews, and his name is Nicodemus. And Nicodemus has been listening to Jesus as Jesus teaches wherever he goes, and Nicodemus has been listening, and he has come to understand that Jesus must be more than a wise teacher. Nicodemus believes, in fact, that Jesus is a teacher from God, and, and he tells Jesus as much. And and really, in John 3, 2, as you see on the screen, that's all Nicodemus says. He doesn't ask Jesus a question. He just says, I believe that you're from God. But Jesus responds to him with this unusual statement about the kingdom of God. In John 3, 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So there's that kingdom language again. Do you see it? Like we saw in Colossians, only this time, the kingdom language isn't deliverance from the domain and transference into, but being born again. That's our entrance into the kingdom. And this kingdom of God is Christ's kingdom, and it is a spiritual kingdom. Because if you keep reading in John chapter 3, Jesus will say in that same conversation with Nicodemus, that which is born of flesh is spiritual. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. So you've got the fleshly kingdom, you have the spiritual kingdom. Now, why does Jesus use this born again language? Why is being born again a thing in the Bible? Well, in our natural birth, when we come into the world, we are born into Adam. So back to my birth certificate it's got my dad's name, Rhett Rudolph. My mom's, my mom's name, Emily Rudolph. And if it were theologically accurate, it would say spiritual father, somewhere on there. And then it would just say Adam. I got my first nature from Adam. And because it is from Adam, I came into the world bent. Bent towards sin. All of us are born bent. Our nature, our fleshly, earthly nature is to sin. Our fleshly, earthly nature is opposed to God. Paul says in Romans 8.8 that those who are in the flesh, those who are living according to this nature, cannot please God. We're born into Adam's nature. We must be born again, born by the Spirit. To take on Christ's nature. So Paul describes it this way in in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, The first man, who was that? That's Adam. He was from the earth. He was a man of dust. And that's just a very accurate description of where Adam came from, isn't it? He was made from dust. The second man, Jesus, came from heaven. All right, the Father sent him. He came from heaven. He was born of a virgin, but he came from heaven. In verse 48, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we bear Adam's image, we also shall bear the image of the man of heaven. We'll bear Christ's image when we're born again. We're born the first time into Adam, and so being born into Adam, we take on Adam's guilt We're born the second time, or as the Bible says, we're born again by the Spirit, born into Christ. And bearing the image of Christ, we take on his, not his guilt, but his righteousness. So that's the second picture that the Bible gives us of becoming a Christian. And there are quite a few other images that God's Word gives us, but those are two that we're going to focus on today because they have particular bearing on baptism. So picture one, deliverance and transference from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. And picture two, of becoming a Christian is being born by the Spirit into Christ. Two ways of understanding what it means to become a Christian. Both are true. Both are significant spiritual realities. They're not just metaphors, these are realities but they're unseen realities. They're they're spiritual realities. And what we're gonna see is that baptism visibly communicates both of those truths of conversion. So we'll deal with the deliverance and the transference into the kingdom idea first, okay? So what does this have to do with baptism? Deliverance and transference. Well, the kingdom of God, this is, um, we see this, phrase throughout the New Testament, we understand that idea, the kingdom of God, to be the the long-anticipated kingdom that would arrive with Messiah, Christ. So if you've been with us in our study of Matthew, you know that Matthew has a lot to say about this kingdom, doesn't it? That the announcement of the arrival of the kingdom was the good news message preached by John the Baptist, and then it was the same message preached by Jesus, What were they saying? Repent for the kingdom is at hand. That message is all over the beginning of the Gospels because it's what Israel had been anticipating. The Jews had been expecting the arrival of a kingdom and they expected that this kingdom would be the restored kingdom of David. That was the kingdom of God they were expecting. The Old Testament expectation was that a son of David was coming who would restore Jerusalem and then who would sit on David's throne. Messiah's kingdom would also be the kingdom that stood opposed to all the kingdoms of the world. And ultimately, Messiah's kingdom would defeat all of the worldly kingdoms and it would stand alone as the final kingdom, the eternal kingdom. And the entire New Testament is about how Jesus is that son of David. He is the Christ Christ. The anointed one, and he is establishing that promised kingdom. And even though that kingdom is totally new and it's totally different than, than they had been expecting, it was only because they weren't reading their Old Testament the way that Jesus would teach them how to. So that kingdom was new. It's, of, it's a kingdom from heaven, it's not of this world. You know, when Jesus is standing for Pilate and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom is also a fulfillment of David's kingdom. right? So We have a heavenly kingdom that is the fulfillment of David's earthly kingdom. The Christ sits where? He sits on David's throne. This kingdom is the fulfillment of who Israel was always meant to be. A kingdom of priests who would have dominion and represent God to the rest of the world. How do we know that that is who Israel was supposed to be? Well, because that's what God tells us. Israel was supposed to be. Look at Exodus nineteen, Exodus nineteen verses five and six. Now, therefore, this is God speaking. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. That's who Israel was supposed to be. That's what God set them apart for. Well, what is Christ's kingdom? Well, this new kingdom is the fulfillment of Israel, and in every way is the new and better Israel, because this new kingdom is in Christ. Look at how Peter describes Christians, citizens of this kingdom, in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Peter speaking, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Now, think back to Exodus. What did it say? You shall be a kingdom of priests. Look what Peter's saying. You shall be, or you are, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Very almost identical language to what we saw in Exodus 19. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what in the world does this kingdom stuff have to do with baptism? (laughs) Well, believe it or not, Israel, as God's kingdom, underwent baptism. Look with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is a key passage in getting the why question right. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church who are really learning about the ordinances in many ways. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we get our our best teaching on what the Lord's Supper is. But regarding baptism, look what Paul says to the Corinthian church. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, who are our fathers? Israelites. He's talking to Gentiles. How in the world are Israelites the fathers of Gentiles? Because of Jesus. So for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Israel's baptism was the Red Sea crossing. The Red Sea crossing was the very visible to everyone... Very visible sign of Israel's deliverance from the worldly pagan domain of Egypt. So God delivered Israel out of that domain and transferred them through the water as the sign that they had been redeemed by God. God had already redeemed them. The baptism, the Red Sea crossing, was God's announcement to Egypt and to all the other kingdoms of the world. These people belong to me. I'm their God, they're my people. And that image better helps us understand Matthew 28. Now how? Matthew 20, 18, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, which is to say, he is what? He's a king, he's the promised king of the eternal kingdom. He is the fulfillment of Israel. His kingdom is God's kingdom. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Messiah. Because Messiah is the anointed king. And Jesus is him. Therefore, when Messiah says, go and make disciples of all nations, what he means is proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to them, teach them that Jesus is the rightful eternal king. Teach them how to follow him and to live in his kingdom. And it's through hearing, Romans chapter 10, it's through hearing the gospel message that people become disciples of Christ, the King. All right, so, so in other words, they become citizens of Christ's kingdom. Disciples of Christ are citizens of his kingdom. Or as Paul put it in Colossians, they are delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the sun. you See the connection, okay? And what will the outward sign of that deliverance and transference be? Well, like Israel, they'll go through water. Like Israel, they'll go through water to show that they've been delivered from the one domain and transferred into Christ's kingdom. That's how baptism relates to the kingdom. The second image of conversion is that of being born again. This is the image that we're, we're more familiar with, isn't it? Because this is what the media calls us, born-again Christians, born-again evangelicals. Uh, so, so we know that this is a thing. It's a, something they call us. So what does it mean? Well, this is the image we're familiar with. Uh, and there are two texts that show us why baptism is a picture of this being born-again into Christ. Well, the first one we'll see, we saw that born-again imagery in John chapter 3 we see the relationship to baptism in Titus chapter three. So Paul is writing a letter to a a missionary who is in Crete, his name is Titus. Titus is helping to establish the church there in Crete. And Paul, when you read Paul, you see these moments where he's giving instruction and then he just moves into a, a proclamation of the gospel. He can't help it because he's being led by the Spirit. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. He says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, where do we see new birth in this passage? Look at verse 5 again. If you still have your Bibles there, if you want to look on the screen, look at verse 5. That word, Regeneration. It's the same theological idea as being born again. Re, we know this root word or this this root, it means again, doesn't it? So think repeat or resend or rewrite. And then to generate means to bring to life. So so put them together, regeneration means to bring to life again or bring to life anew or born again. So, Paul is describing here in beautiful words what conversion is. And this is really just an expansion on what Jesus taught in John 3. Paul is exegeting John 3. This is the behind the scenes spiritual reality that takes place when we become Christians. We don't save ourselves, do we? God saves us by his mercy. And the means through which he saves us is what? Do you see it there in verse 5? The washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's the means through which we're united to Christ. That's the means through which we are brought into Christ. And notice how Paul describes this in verse 6. The Holy Spirit is poured out. All right. so let's put it together. Regeneration, being born again is deepened here. Paul shows us here that this regeneration is actually a washing. It is a a cleansing that leads to this new life in Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the one who does this to us, in us. And like water, He's poured out on us by Jesus Christ, our Savior. And this cleansing that is done by the Spirit is what justifies us. It makes us clean. It makes us right before God. It makes us righteous. So how might we then illustrate this as Christians? How, how could we illustrate a spiritual reality of being washed by the Holy Spirit and brought to new life? Well, for, for Jews... People like Jesus, being, being immersed in water was always the way that ritual cleansing was done. This wasn't invented by John the Baptist, The beginning of the Gospels, when he's going around baptizing people. This is, was not something new. The difference between Jewish baptism, though, and Christian baptism was that Jews had to be baptized over and over and over and over, and over again. In order to be ritually washed and in order to go to the temple to be clean, to be presented before God, you had to be ritually washed over and over and over again. But the Holy Spirit's baptism, what happens inside of us when we're born again, that's once for all time. Once you've been saved not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to God's own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom God poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, once you've been justified by his grace, and you've become an heir, according to the hope of eternal life, you don't ever have to be cleansed again. Because that's what saves you. That's what cleanses you. The Holy Spirit is who cleanses us. Justification once by God is justification for eternity. And like that, once for all time, washing and renewal by the Spirit that we receive when we're born again, we only baptize one time in water. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We do that one time as a visible sign of the spiritual reality. So if you were baptized, and then you sinned, which, if you've been baptized, that's all of us. If if, if you were baptized and then you sinned, you don't have to be baptized again. Because listen, Christian, your standing before God is not dependent on you. And it's not dependent on the water that you were baptized in. Your standing before God, your right standing before God is dependent only on Christ's work for you. Salvation is by grace alone. Being born again, you will grow up like a baby. Babies are born, they grow up. Being born again, you grow up into Christ's likeness. But it's a process, we call that Progressive sanctification. It's a progressive process. It takes time. You will trip. You will stumble. You will sin. Even after being born again, I promise you, you will sin because you're still in the flesh. But the Spirit in you who has caused you to be born again, he will convict you of sin and he will lead you to repentance because he's with you. And, and, and you know what else is your brothers and sisters in Christ will restore you, Galatians 6, they will restore you and point you again to Christ. And you will continue to grow up into Christ if you're truly in Christ. But you will not, you cannot be born again, again. So so once you've been baptized by the church as a visible sign of your new birth, never again will you need to be baptized to show that the Spirit has once for all time caused you to be born again into Christ. Well, how does someone know if they're born again? That's the question, isn't it? Because if you were baptized at a very young age, how do you know if you were born again at that time? Well, there's evidence in your life. There's evidence. Born-again Christians have the fruit of the Spirit. They're bearing the fruit of the Spirit. They're repentant. They've renounced their old life, and they're living as if Christ is their king, because he is, because they've been transferred into his kingdom. They've been born again by the Spirit to live in Christ. And so Christ is their king. Those are the biblical evidences of regeneration, of new birth. That is what a church who rightly understands baptism is looking for when they baptize. Has this spiritual reality occurred in this person? Yes? Then let's proclaim it. Let's baptize them, because that's what Jesus says to do. So that's being born again, according to Paul in Titus. And we saw there is a spiritual baptism. And so water baptism is the sign of that spiritual reality. There's another place where we see rebirth as tied to baptism, only this one's a little more graphic. So less pouring, less washing, more dying and rising. Look with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. So Paul in Romans chapter 5 has just given. A beautiful picture of what justification is and how it happens. And he tells us it's by faith. And we're being justified. We have a right standing before God in Romans chapter 5. It's by it's by faith. God is the one who does it. Our faith connects us into, in, into Christ. We believe it and then we begin to show evidence of that faith, Romans chapter 5. And then Paul asks this question because it seems like, well, hold on a minute. if If we're Already justified by faith. If we're already right and clean before God. Look at his question, Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Do you, do you understand the question? Because if God is the one who's redeemed us by grace, well then grace looks a lot bigger than more we sin. And Paul says, no. <laughs> by no means. Very strong No. This is yet another picture of the new birth. You see it? Becoming a Christian is dying with Christ, identifying with Christ's death, and being raised up like Christ was raised from the dead. We are raised to, look at verse 4, we are raised to walk in newness of life. So our old self died, we're born again into Christ. We have a new life in him. And then notice what imagery, what picture Paul uses to to illustrate that spiritual reality. Baptism. Now again, this, this in Romans 6 is not water baptism being spoken of. This is the Spirit's baptism of us. It's another way of saying we're born again. It's that Titus 3 picture. Holy Spirit baptism is not something that happens after you become a Christian. Rather, it happens at the moment that you become a Christian. Holy Spirit baptism is the dying of the old self and rebirth into Christ because the Holy Spirit is the one doing that. What we see here in Romans 6 is the exact same thing we saw in Titus 3. It's the same thing we saw in John 3. This is the new birth. This is conversion. But the reason Paul uses the word baptism to describe that rebirth, that dying and coming to life again is because of how closely water baptism mimics or illustrates that spiritual reality. Think about the drama of baptism. We don't have a a drama program here. We have the Lord's Supper and we have baptism. Think about the drama of baptism. Mitchell and Brent in a few moments will be in the baptistry with me and we will see a picture they will we'll see a picture of them, of them having died and being born again. They have been crucified with Christ. They go under the water. Death. They're raised up with Christ. They come out of the water to walk in newness of life. New life. Born again. New life. Incidentally, that's why we practice immersion baptism. Baptism, it's from the Greek word baptizo, that, that means immersion. No one disputes that. Immersion, baptizo, means immersion, dunking, going under the water. And going under and coming back up is the only way that we can illustrate this Romans 6 reality. Think about sprinkling or splashing or pouring doesn't quite have the same dramatic force, does it? Baptism is a picture of of the spiritual reality that has already taken place. Died, unified with Christ, raised to new life. The picture, the image, the drama under the water, come up out of the water. This is the image, this is the picture that God has given us to show what being born again is like. So how then do we show that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into Christ's kingdom? Well, the same way Israel was delivered, through water. And how can we show that we've been born again, that we've been washed and regenerated, that our old selves have died, and we've been raised to new life in Christ? Going under the water, coming back up. As a church... We baptize new believers to show them what the Father, Son, and Spirit have already accomplished in them. And notice how I said that we as a church do this. We baptize new believers. People do not baptize themselves. Because being baptized is something that is done to you. It's The same with salvation, isn't it? We do not, we cannot save ourselves. The Father predestines us for salvation. The Son dies and is resurrected to accomplish our salvation. The Spirit applies the Son's work to us. He unites us to Christ. Salvation is something that happens to us. So is baptism. And since since it is Jesus Christ who has accomplished our salvation and pours the Spirit on us, it is the body of Christ, the church, who affirms a new believer believer as belonging to Christ. The church who baptizes. Christ baptizes us spiritually by pouring the Spirit on us. The body of Christ baptizes us physically by immersing us in the water and bringing us back out. The local church is the entity that God has given the authority to to say, yes, This person is bearing the fruit of repentance. This person understands what God has done for them. This person is now living a life consistent with Christ's work in them. And seeing the evidence that someone has been delivered from sin and transferred into Christ's kingdom by God, seeing the evidence of their rebirth into Christ, we can be confident that this person is a disciple of Christ. And so the church does what Jesus said to do to disciples of Christ. In obedience to Christ, the church baptizes the individual as a visible sign of the spiritual reality. Baptism is the church's way given to us by Jesus Christ himself. It's the church's way of welcoming that person person into the kingdom. And it is the church's announcement. Remember how God was announcing to, announcing to Egypt and the kingdoms of the world that the Israelites were his? This is God through the church announcing to Satan and to the rest of the world something that God has already declared to be true. This one belongs to Jesus. So if you belong to Jesus and you haven't been baptized, we would invite you to be baptized, not today. We have two who will be baptized today, two that have shown evidence of the fruit, the Spirit, the Spirit is working in their lives, they are repentant of past sin, and they're living lives in union with Christ now. So we're going to see that happen. If that has happened for you, if you have been born again and you have not been baptized, we'd invite you to. And the way that that works here is you tell a pastor, I want to be baptized. And then we talk to you about what baptism is. We work through God's word, very similar to what we did this morning. And then we ask you, what is the fruit in your life that you have been born again? That's all there is to it. There's fruit, you get baptized. If it seems like you're not quite there, you don't quite understand who Jesus is, you don't quite understand the gospel, then we continue to disciple you until you are a disciple of Christ. Amen? That's simple.